0: This evening we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 6, beginning at verse 2 and taking us down through the end of the chapter, through, well, through verse 27. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative, and the word of the Lord is completely without error. Exodus chapter 6, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses, because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari. Mahali and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elphan, and Sithri, Aaron took as his wife, Elishabah, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Naashon, And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas, These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt... No. Thus far the reading... ...of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would make this word clear to us. That You would open it up. That we might see Your love for us. That we might see the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. You know, to find out if we are loved... We will do all sorts of things. Do you remember your younger days? Or perhaps you're there now. Women actually acted like they liked sports. Men actually appeared to be interested in every detail of conversation. In order to find out if the one they loved loved them in return. Even children aren't immune to this kind of thinking. Children will try and do all sorts of things to confirm if you love them. Now, why do we do this? It's because we have a natural desire to be loved. And at the same time, sin has convinced us that we can only be loved if we are lovable in some sort of way. And the most common way that we make ourselves lovable is by trying to earn the love of others. But that is not God's way, as we will see this evening. Not only does God not want us to earn His love, He tells us this evening that His love precedes anything that we could do or say. And in fact, His love exists in spite of all that we do. God's people can only find comfort and purpose in one thing, God himself. This has always been so from the very day that Adam was created. God is at the beginning, the middle, and the end of every believer's life. To paraphrase Augustine, my heart has no rest until it finds its rest in you, O God. This evening, God tells us, just as he told the Israelites thousands of years ago, that our hearts rest in God because he has set his heart upon us. So let's see then this evening three things that tell us what it means to be loved by God. First, to be loved by God means to be known by God. Second, to be loved by God means to have the promises of God. And then third, to be loved by God means that we have the commands of God. Let's begin then and look at what it means to be loved by God by being known by God. We begin with the opening of this chapter in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Now, It is a principle that knowledge begins with the knower, not with the thing known. Now that may sound philosophical to you, but it is a truth that is found in the pages of the Bible. Knowledge begins with the one who is knowing, not with the one who is known. And so this is exactly where we begin this evening. That knowledge begins with the knower, that is, with God himself. And in the time of his people's distress, notice how God comforts them. He comes to them with his word. God spoke to Moses. Don't glance over that. In a time of great struggle, discouragement, and harshness, God comes to his people, and he comes to his people by way of his word. And this is ever the way with God. He knows not only that his word is truth, he knows that his word is life. Wherever the word of God is, the people of God flourish. Because the word of God sustains them. Now that should give you Great comfort this evening. I know for a fact it is of great comfort to our brothers and sisters across the world who are persecuted by governments and tribes and nations. They have comfort and encouragement, not because their political situation is good, not because they have great lands and wealth, but because they have the word of God. And with the word of God, they know that they are known by God, that he has revealed himself to them. Do you remember Peter's response to Jesus when Christ asked him if he wanted to go away? Peter knew he couldn't live without the word of God. Peter answered Jesus and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is no place else that we can go. There is a famous example in the times of the Puritans of a minister who took on as it were an act of acting as God. And he was speaking to the people of God and saying that because they had not been in God's word, that they had not shown a love for God's word, that I, God, will take my word away from you. And then he interceded in the place of the people and said, no, Lord, don't take your word for us from us. Do anything else. Chastise us. Kill us. Take food from us. Make us live out of doors. Do anything but take your word from us. For without your word, we have no hope. Do you have loved ones in distress right now? Bring them God's word. Do you have doubt in your heart right now? Go to the word of God. Knowledge begins with the knower, not with the thing known. And so God begins with himself. He begins this conversation with Moses with a declaration of who he is. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Now think about all of our modern attempts to explain the love of God. If a modern novelist were writing the story of Exodus chapter 6. It would look very different. Perhaps it would begin with God speaking about Israel's plight. I know how hard you've had it. I know how much a challenge this has been. We might even say something like, I feel your pain. Or perhaps it would begin in another fashion. God would begin by saying, I have a plan for you. Israel, I have a wonderful plan for your life. Or instead, he might begin with all the good that Moses has done for God in order to give Moses assurance to go on. But in fact, God begins with none of these. He begins with a bare statement of who he is. That's where God begins. In fact, this statement of God's person forms sort of a bookend for the entire conversation. Look at verse 2 and then look at verse 8. It's the same statement. I am the Lord. It's as if he opens and ends with a statement of who he is. What are you looking for from God? Are you looking for immediate relief from your problems? Are you looking for the answer to all of your questions? Are you looking for the right feelings that God can bring to you? God comes first and foremost with Himself, He offers Himself to His people. And that's because God's knowledge of us is relational. Now, God does not present himself to Moses in a vacuum. He continues to remind Moses of his relationship to his people. For God, knowledge presupposes relationship. He cannot be dispassionate about his knowledge of his people. Now, so often we think of the model for knowledge as being detached Or dispassionate. Think about the reporter. Or think about the scientist. Who dispassionately observes something. But that's not true knowledge. That's not the knowledge that God has of His people. And it's not the knowledge that God wants us to have of Him. Let me put it boldly to you. God does not want you to know He exists in three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to know that He is holy and just and good. And to know that He is the creator of all the universe and the sustainer of it by the word of His power, if you do not know Him. He's not satisfied with your knowledge about Him. He wants you to know Him. To have a relationship with Him. And, of course, this relationship requires revelation. Notice how the patriarchs came to know God. They were already known by God, and they were already the object of His favor, and He revealed Himself to them. As a matter of fact, God made Himself known to Abraham in order that He might bless them. He established His covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Now that same kind of knowledge is available to you and to me. We have to understand that God knows you in order to bless you. There is a reason why God knows you. And God's knowledge of His people is not only long-standing, it's not only intimate, it is also a knowledge of of commitment. And so at the beginning of verse 4, the text actually begins with two strong, two strong particles. The sense of it is, and also I established. There is an explicit connection with the previous verse, with verse 3. That is, the establishment of God's covenant in verse 4 flows out of his knowledge of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in verse 3. Because he knew them, he entered into covenant with them. God does not reveal himself for no purpose. No, he reveals himself so that he might have a relationship with his people. See how God knows his people. He knows them particularly. He knows them by name. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's the God of Moses and Aaron. Just look over our text at how many times the names Moses and Aaron are used. God knows them intimately by name. And he's also the God of all of those listed in verses 14 through 27. You may wonder, why does the Bible have this long list of names that I don't understand and I can't pronounce and I don't know who these people are? Does the pastor really need to read all of that? Yes. It's important. Because it shows us that God knows his people so tenderly by name that he puts their names in his eternal word. Now you may know, you may not know how to pronounce Kohath. But the name of Kohath is preserved for all eternity in God's word. Because God knew him. This is the intimacy of God's relationship with his people. But God's knowledge is also compassionate. Notice that God recounts the details of his relationship with the patriarchs to Moses. In order to assure Moses that he's not forgotten his covenant. He knows their needs, that they need a land. He knows their circumstances, that they were sojourners. And so in verse 5, what we see is the literal fulfillment of what we saw in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. You remember in Exodus 2, verse 24, we read that God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God tells us explicitly that in chapter 6, verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel and I have remembered My covenant. It is a literal fulfillment of God's knowledge of his people. But secondly, to be loved by God is not merely to be known by God, but it is to have the promises of God. And there are three types of promises that are set forth here in verses 6 through 8. There are promises of redemption. There are promises of relationship. And there are promises of reward. Let's look first at the promises of redemption in verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. Now, we see it here again. You can't get away from it. We saw it this morning. There it is. Our therefore. When you see it, what do you do? You look back and you see what the therefore is there for. What is the therefore, therefore? Say to the people of Israel, I will bring you out because I have remembered my covenant. God's deliverance, his promise of redemption, is is based on his promise to be a God to his people. He will rescue them from their slavery. And it is more than just relief that God promises here. He doesn't just promise them ease in Egypt. He doesn't even say to them, Listen... My people, I understand life is really tough. Building the pyramids, the whole bricks without straw business. I'm going to take you out from Egypt and I'm going to bring you to Ethiopia. And you could be under the king of Ethiopia. He's a much nicer king. He'll provide you all the straw you need. And you don't need to build pyramids nearly as high. It'll be much better for you. That's not what God says. He's not just a kinder master to Israel than Pharaoh. He doesn't just try to find to them some ease. No, he will completely redeem them. And the language here of redemption is the language of one who is a kinsman redeemer. One who redeems a close relative. A loved one. We see this most obviously in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. We see it With Boaz, the kinsman redeemer to Ruth and Naomi, he redeems them because he is the close relative. It is actually a distinct role in the people of Israel. Now, is God acting like Boaz? I don't think so. That gets our order reversed. I think Boaz is acting like God. The people of Israel have established kinsman-redeemer as an office, as it were, to reflect the kind of redemption that God brings to his people. It's a redemption born out of love, born out of relationship. Of course, we are redeemed in the same way, aren't we, by our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter reminds us of this when he says, You were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like gold or silver, but instead with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. To be loved by God is to have the promises of God, promises of redemption, yes, but also promises of relationship, as we see in verse 7. I will take you to be my people, And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God says that he will take Israel as his people. This is part and parcel of the covenant promise. He will come down and dwell with his people. He will be their God. Now this is a matter of utmost importance. For what is freedom without love? What is it to be redeemed and not under the defense and the guidance of God? And so therefore, the same one who reconciles us to God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is also the one who defends us, restraining and conquering all his and all our enemies. Now notice that the future tense is used here in verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. It's not just that God will be their God now to set them on their feet and then they can carry it from there. No, God will be their God forever. And the redemption that he creates from Egypt will be an evidence that he is their God, that he knows them and he loves them. The third kind of promise that we have that shows us that we are loved by God, is the promise of reward. Look at verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. God promises to bring them into the land. He promises that He will give it to them as a lasting heritage. Notice that even in confirming His promises to us, God shows us His love. He doesn't just say, I will bring you into the land. He says, I will bring you into the land that I swore I would give you. This is like an oath in court. God is taking an oath to fulfill His covenant promise to His people. Thirdly, to be loved by God is not only to be known by God, It is not only to have the promises of God. It is also to have the commands of God. And we see this in verses 9 through 13. Now at first glance, you hear this and you say, that doesn't make much sense, pastor. You get commands from someone who's harsh, from someone who tells you what to do, from someone who bosses you around. A command isn't a sign of love. A command is a sign of control. But that's not what the Bible tells us. Because in spite of all that God gives to us, we don't know what we have. And so, what we see is this interesting scene where Moses hears the word of God and he obeys. Look at verse 9. He goes right to the people of Israel. But notice what a difference the initial difficulty to the Israelites makes. Where before Israel believed... You remember chapter 4, verse 31? Now they doubt and they do not listen. They did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Where once their groaning and their anguish caused them to cry out to God. Now they cry out against God. They are robbing themselves of God's promises... Kelvin puts us this puts it this way There is no greater curse than to be rendered heavy and dull so as to be deaf to God's promises Do you know and hear and have God's promises tonight Or have you become dull and hard of hearing And when we become dull and hard of hearing God does not let us go on Our own. God does not stop helping those who are willing to perish. This is, I think, one of the ways in which God is most unlike us. Have you ever tried to help someone that kept refusing your help? You kept saying, let me help you study for that test. No, I don't want to be bothered. Let me help you fix your car. No, 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 get away from me. Let me help you around the house. No, no, I can handle it. Get away from me. What do we eventually say? Fine. Take care of yourself. Blows up in your face. It blows up in your face. I wash my hands of it, right? I don't have to keep going out of my way. That's our human reaction to that kind of rejection of help and promise. But that's not what God does. No, instead, God presses on with His plan of love in spite of unbelief. This is, I think, what Hosea in chapter 11 means when it tells us that God binds Israel to Himself with cords of love. God will not let us go our own way of destruction. He gathers His people to Himself. And so God's commands that come to us cannot be stopped by the will of His people. You see, God gives us his commands to draw us to himself. What does God tell Moses when Israel rejects what he says to them? He gives Moses a command. But I think this is very interesting. To whom does the command go? Look at verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge. Now look up here, not at your Bible. And guess who the charge is given to? The easy guess is Pharaoh, right? Give the command to Pharaoh to let my people go. But that's not all that the text says. Now look down again. He gave a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God gives this command not only to Pharaoh, but to Israel. Now imagine where we are. From chapter 2, where Israel is crying out because of bondage. Where God is saying to Israel, I am commanding you to be free. I am commanding you to be delivered. I am commanding you to claim my promise. That certainly sounds like an act of love, doesn't it? No much less than the way parents command their children. It seems harsh to us and a limitation upon our freedom. We want to be able to run around outside wherever we want to. And our parents say, you can't run in the street. And we think, why do you have to be such a downer? Can't I just be free? Can't I just go wherever I want to go? No. Because it's dangerous. And I love you. And I don't want harm to come to you. These are commands of love. So let me ask you this evening. Are you in covenant with God? If so, then you must be known by God and loved by God. And the result of that should be for you to praise Him. If you are known and loved by God, you have right now the promises of God. You are redeemed and you are related to God by His Son and you await the reward That he has promised you. God shows his love to his people. He shows to them. By letting them know that he knows them intimately. By letting them know he has given his promises to them. Sure and precious promises. And by giving them his commands. So that they might live a life of fullness and joy. What a blessing it is to be loved by God. Let's pray.